Um, our reading today is from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was once a rich man who wore expensive clothes and every day ate the best food. But a poor beggar named Lazarus was brought to the gate of the rich man's house. He was happy just to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. His body was covered with sores and dogs kept coming up to lick them. The poor man died and angels took him to the place of honour next to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. He went to hell and was suffering terribly. When he looked up and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, he said to Abraham, Have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. I'm suffering terribly in this fire. Abraham answered, My friend, remember that while you lived, you had everything good and Lazarus had everything bad. Now he is happy and you are in pain. And besides, there is a deep ditch between us and no one from either side can cross over. But the rich man said, Abraham, then please let Lazarus send Lazarus to my father's home. Let him warn my five brothers so that they won't come to this horrible place. Abraham answered, Your brothers can read what Moses and the prophets wrote. They should pay attention to that. Then the rich man said, No, that's not enough. If only someone from the dead would go to them, they would listen and turn to God. So Abraham said, If they won't pay attention to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even to someone who comes back from the dead. excuse my voice, I'm still getting over the, the flu I had <laughs> weeks and weeks ago and I keep getting this <coughs> problem so if I'm hungry <coughs> all the time just excuse me, it's good to see you all again, good to be here and it's also good to know that next week you'll be meeting in our church so <laughs> I must say we're very happy about that you know, the, the church is uh, very welcoming to you Did you say Expecting scones and cream. Hmm? Expecting scones and cream. Oh, well, I hadn't thought about that. (coughs) To talk to my wife. (coughs) Right, well, (coughs) the uh, parable I've been given is not the easiest one in the book. (laughs) In fact, I think a lot of people don't like it for a number of reasons, which I won't go into right now. But I just want to remind you that parables are stories that are usually true to life, but not actual events, not historical events. And Jesus used these as a means of conveying truths about life and especially about the kingdom of God. He often said the kingdom of God is like, and then he told them a little parable. But I want to remind you about a few principles regarding parables. First of all, I believe... um, they're not actual historical stories. They, they are stories that uh, people made up or Jesus made up to. But I think they were actually based on the sort of things that did happen. Secondly, they usually have a main theme that we should focus on and not try and look for a whole lot of other things in the stories. Thirdly, 
They should always be taken in context. You should see why they were told what, what was happening in that situation, not just pluck them out and um, because that can change the meaning of them completely. It should be taken in context. That is, we, we should like to see why the story was told. Fourthly, we should look to see who told the parable and to whom they told it. And in this case, of course, it's straightforward. Uh, Jesus told the parable and we'll look at who he was talking to. And finally, I think we should not try to make every detail into something that it was not meant to be. Okay, It's very easy to say, oh, this represents this and that represents that, when it doesn't necessarily. In the case of this parable, it was called in the old days, <coughs> old days, Dives and Lazarus. And Dives is another word for a rich man, and we don't use that word today. At least I don't hear anyone saying Dives and Lazarus. And um, Lazarus was a common name, but it's the only parable in the Bible in which a person is given their name. Do you realise that? No one else is called by a name. And the context here is actually not simple. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus simply launches into the story. So we need to look back and say, okay, what is the context here? And if we go back to chapter 15, verse 1, uh, before all these parables, there's a whole lot of them together, um, we have, I think, the main clue. In chapter 15, at verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. This, this, I think, is the context. Because Jesus told those three stories of lostness about how different people were lost and why they were lost and how God has come seeking them. The Pharisees, of course, were very self-righteous people and they kept away from sinners. They wouldn't mix because they'd become contaminated. But Jesus spent all his time with sinners. And I think there's a lesson for us in the church because in my era, when we were converted, we were told, no, you keep away from sin. You know, don't go to dances, don't swear, don't spit, don't smoke, don't drink, don't this, don't that. And we isolated ourselves. And, you know, I've often thought, if Jesus came to town, where would you find him? Would you find him up at the cathedral? Probably find him down in the pub talking to people. And we struggle with that, I think. Oh, Denise, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I think this is the main clue. And it's an important one because it shows us the difference between Jesus and those religious leaders. Secondly, in chapter 16, verse 14, we read, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they sneered at Jesus. That's the second clue about the context the Pharisees sneered because Jesus told them a parable about the cunning manager who had used his position to feather his nest so that when he got the sack, which was imminent, he would be able to cope with his future. He used his master's money to set himself up uh, for when he was sacked. <clears throat> now the thing that interests me here is that the Pharisees 
were very religious people and they kept the law. You remember Jesus said, you, you tithe even the mint in your garden and the cumin, you know, the jerubab, and <laughs> you go around taking a tenth of every little herb so that you're fulfilling the law. But the big things you neglect. And so they were very religious. But it says here that they loved money. And it seems to me that they had departmentalised their lives. On the one hand they were religious, on the other hand they loved money and they kept the two separate. They didn't let their, their faith or their religion affect the way they used money. And so it seems to me that this parable really is addressed to this issue, how we use money. Okay? I think this is the main thing. And it says, if we look at the text, that there was a rich man. Graham and I the other day were talking about rich people and he looked up on his phone about some of the rich people in the world. One guy had, was it 1,600 or 16,000 cars? Do you remember? I think it was 1,600 cars. I thought, what's the point? You can only drive one at a time. You've only got seven days in the week. But he was worth billions of money. So I looked up on the internet and it says that Jeff Bezos, whoever he is, is worth $145 billion. $145 billion. Now that's rich. And the second richest is Bill Gates with a mere $98 billion. But I'll say this for Bill Gates. He and his wife have set up a foundation which they put millions and millions and millions of dollars into to give away. The third one is a guy called Bernard Arnott who is worth $83 billion. So there are rich people and rich people. I mean, we're all rich, aren't we? We, we live in nice homes. We've got nice cars. Look outside. We've all got nice cars. We've got nice clothes. So we're rich, really. But compared with these people, we're not rich. We're poor. $145 billion. That's rich. That's mega rich. But this man was rich, we're told, and he was dressed in purple. Now, purple, evidently, though, the dye that was used to make purple clothes was from a, a, a very rare uh, berry uh, plant. So only the very wealthy could afford to buy purple robes. So they put them on, and then, of course, they strutted around, you know, look at me, I've got my purple robe on. I'm rich. Yeah, I'm wonderful. And it also says he wore fine linen. Evidently, fine linen was what you had for your underpants, like Tuku Morgan. Remember he had to... Flash on the pants cost a hundred dollars or something. So your underwear was made from fine linen from Egypt. So this man was um, rich. He was, he was very rich, and it says he ate sumptuously every day. In other words, he didn't have a day off on the Sabbath. Every day was the same to him. He had a big feed, had a feast every day, and you know. If we looked at a person like that, it was always a very successful person. You might say he's self-made, you know, he's done well, isn't he, isn't he good? Well, let's lay that aside and look at the second person in the story. A man who was given the name of Lazarus. Now, he was a beggar and from what we're told here, he didn't have anything in life. He had nothing. He didn't even have any health. He didn't have decent clothes and he didn't have any food. And worse still, he was covered in sores and he couldn't walk. 
He was carried, we're told, and dumped at the gate of the rich man every day in the hope that he might get something. It says he, he desired only the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man, but the trouble was the dogs were there and they would eat all the crumbs, so he couldn't even crawl in and get the crumbs. But the dogs would come and lick his sores. Well, it's a pretty disgusting story, isn't it? I mean, maybe that's why we don't like reading it, because we don't like to think of anyone who's that poor. And, of course, in the end, he starved and was sick and died. It doesn't say he was buried. It doesn't say he had a funeral. It says he died. Finished. But then it says, and then the rich man died. And he had a wonderful funeral. You can just imagine he had five brothers to say nothing of how many sisters he had. And he was rich, so all his friends would be there. And I can imagine, you know, they all got up and said, oh, this guy was a great guy, you know, he was this and he was that and he was the other and he did this and he did that and he did the other. Had a wonderful send-off. But, of course, it always strikes me as being ironic that both the very, very, very poor and the very, very rich man both ended up with nothing. You can't take a single thing with you when you die. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? People that get up and they vaunt themselves. Oh, I've got so many billions. <laughs> One day, yeah, mate, you're going to have nothing. You can't even take the shroud with you that you're buried with. Not even the casket. You can't take it with you. You go with nothing. And so they both ended up with nothing. Well, the, we're told very clearly that the rich man was in hell and he was in torment. Not a happy story. Not a happy chappy, not a happy camper, as they say. And he looked up and he could see Abraham, who was the father of the nation, and he could see that Lazarus was there. And it's in the old version, it says, in the bosom. We should sing a song in the bosom of Abraham. And um, I think that probably what that means is, you remember that in John's Gospel, it says at the Last Supper that John leaned on Jesus' shoulder on his, on his chest, and that would be the same term in the bosom of Jesus as in the story the bosom of Abraham. Lazarus was leaning there, and I don't know whether they're having a banquet in heaven or what, but um, <clears throat> he was in a very happy place while this rich man was in hell. And what I find interesting is that although this beggar was put at the rich man's gate every day, you would have thought this, the rich man didn't know who he was, but he recognised him and he knew his name. And he called out to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, please, send Lazarus. <laughs> you know, he ignored him alive to the death. Oh, my friend Lazarus sent him down and, and just to bring a little water because I'm in such torment here. And, uh, you know, he was still treating Lazarus like you know, send Lazarus, tell him to come. I'm an important person, he's not. Tell him to come and bring me some water. And uh, Abraham said to him, can't do it, my friend. We can't do it. There's a great chasm, a great gulf fixed between us. And no one can come from where you are to us, and I can't send Lazarus to you. So he says, well, <clears throat> send Lazarus to my brothers. In my father's house, I have five brothers. 
and I don't want them to end up here. So St. Lazarus there. And Abraham says, no, we're not going to do that. Because they've got Abraham, they've got Moses, the, t- the law of Moses and the teaching of the prophets. And if they don't listen to that, then they wouldn't believe anyone who came from the dead. And I think that's true, isn't it? Because if you go back to John chapter 11, and notice that Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, didn't he? Remember that? And it says that many people came to see this amazing thing. That many people came to the funeral instead of actually having a funeral, they end up having a party because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I wish I had time to talk about that because I think it's one of the most amazing and wonderful stories in the Bible. But many people, it says, came from Jerusalem to have a look at this guy who was raised from the dead. They'd all heard about it, so they came. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when they saw that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, did they believe? No, they plotted to kill Jesus. They said, this whole thing's gone too far. We've got to put an end to this. And so they plotted to kill him. So what Abraham said is true. If, we sent, if God sent Lazarus, the second Lazarus back, people didn't believe. Some did, some didn't. Uh, and so Abraham said, if he sent this Lazarus, the beggar, back, they wouldn't believe. And secondly, Jesus was raised from the dead. But did people believe? I mean, those same Pharisees and scribes, they didn't believe. They did everything they could to cover it up. And after that, they set about to destroy the followers of Jesus. And we know that Acts of the Apostles is really a series of people being killed, starting with, well, John the Baptist was the first, wasn't he, before Jesus died, and then Jesus died. And Stephen was stoned to death for preaching. James had his head cut off. I mean, it's a whole series of... I often think to myself, why would anyone want to be a Christian? You all got killed. And the same thing is happening in many countries today. If you're baptised and believe in Christ, you're likely to die. That's not a happy situation. And so sending someone back from the dead is not going to be the answer to the problem. They still won't believe. So that's the story. It's um, fairly straightforward and simple. But in conclusion, I think I'd like like us to think about what some of the main lessons are that we can take from this. And I think the first thing is we can't live our lives with walls around various aspects of our lives. We can't separate um, our faith as Christians from other aspects of our life. If we are believers, we have to allow Jesus to affect the way we live in every area of our life. And when I say this, I think always of an experience I had years ago in Australia. I was studying in Melbourne and I decided to look up some of my father's distant relatives because he was brought up in the Orthodox Church and these people were all Orthodox. When they found out I was an Anglican, they were horrified. They said, you can't be saved outside the Orthodox Church. You must change. And I got talking to them about 
been converted and knowing Jesus as my saviour, they didn't know what I was talking about. And when I challenged them about the way they lived, they said to us, oh look, you've got to be realistic. You know, it's okay to go to church on Sunday, but if you're a Christian during the week, you would never make any money. <laughs> Do you wonder why there's problems in the world? <laughs> they had de- departmentalised their lives completely, just like this rich man. Business and money did not mix with their faith at all. And I thought I was crazy when I said, you know, you've got to allow Jesus to control every part of your life. And I think we do. In the way we handle our money, in the way we treat other people, in the areas of our sexuality, in areas of forgiving others as well as being received, and so on. We can't put our faith in a box or in one day of the week or anything like that. We must allow it to, um, to affect every aspect of our life just as this rich man didn't do. Now, the second thing is the Bible makes it clear that being rich is not a sin. I want to make that clear because, you know, um, if someone's rich, we can't automatically think, oh, they must be bad people. Not at all. There are a lot of very, very good and very wealthy people at the same time. But what is a sin is when people keep their wealth to themselves. They say, this is mine and I'm not going to share it with anyone. You don't actually have to be rich to do that. Poor people can do that too. Even if we've only got a little bit, we can still say, this is mine. I've earned it, it's mine, and no one can touch it. Think of the parable of the rich fool. The guy didn't do anything wrong. He worked hard and got big harvest, and he said, oh, look at all my harvest. What will I do? I know, I'll pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll say to myself, so, take your rest. Your rest. You are rich now, you have enough to last for many days. Eat, drink and be merry. And God says, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to work hard and have a lot of money. But it is wrong when we keep it only for ourselves. And Jesus said at the end of that parable, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. So this when I said that this parable is about the way we use money, it's also, I think, about um, how we treat other people. Now we all know that we are saved through faith and not by our works. But there's no excuse for us to ignore the suffering parts of the Christian church or to ignore people who we could help right here in our own backyard if we wanted to. We cannot believe that what I have is mine and mine alone. Because all that we have, when you think about it, everything, our bodies, our minds, our education, all things that were given to us, weren't they? We didn't create ourselves. My body was given to me by my mum and dad. And so, you know, I didn't make it myself. I didn't learn it. It was just something that happened. And my education was paid for by my parents through their tax and the government and so on. And so what we use all that for, that's up to us. Everything we have, even our faith, is given to us by God. So we are to show our gratitude by by using all that we have to bless others. And the measure we do that, I believe, is the measure 
that God accredits to us. If we do it well, he will, I think, give us a pat on the back. If we do it badly, then we will have to face the consequences. Now, I think it would be easy to look at this parable and think that rich people will automatically go to hell while really poor people will automatically go to heaven. And this parable doesn't teach that. I don't believe it for a moment. The rich man was condemned not because he was rich, but because he was self-centred and unloving and unconcerned for anyone but himself. And having worked in rural Africa amongst some of the poorest people in the world, I've concluded that there is no merit in being poor. Do you understand what I mean by that? Being poor is not a good thing. You mustn't think that poor people are really good people. They're not. They're no different from rich people. I could tell you endless stories of what poor people did in Africa to each other. Like the guy who got a good cotton crop and stored it in his loft and someone set fire to it because they said, why should he have cotton when we haven't got any? There's no merit in being poor. It's not a virtue any more than being rich is a virtue. The poor can exploit each other just as much as rich do. Lazarus was poor because he was crippled and had to be carried to the gate of the rich man. He couldn't work. He couldn't help himself. And it was laid on the people and the law of Moses and the teaching of the prophets that they should help the fatherless and the widows and the stranger within their gates. The lack of compassion is what condemned that man not just the fact that he was rich. Then we must consider that there was a great gulf fixed between the rich man or what I would think of as the ex-rich man because he now had absolutely nothing and Abraham with Lazarus. Abraham said, there's no way that one can go to the other side and it seems clear to me that hell is reserved for those who reject God in this life and I don't believe that there will be a second chance. Some people think that we'll, we'll get a second go at it. Well, somehow God will say, well, look, are you really sorry for all the naughty things you did? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll come to heaven. I don't believe that's true. We're given this life, I believe, we're given this life to make a decision about where we will spend eternity. It's our choice. God has opened the door for everyone. But it's our choice whether we'll go in or whether we'll say, I'll think about it, or maybe later on, or something like that. I know a lot of young people think, later, later, I want to have a bit of fun first, because they think God's a killjoy. He's not at all. He wants the very best for us. I used to think that myself, to be honest. <laughs> and that's why I think it's imperative for the church to preach the gospel and to let people know that there is a God and that there is a heaven and that it's reserved for those who respond to God's love in this life. And finally, consider the fact that the rich man had five brothers, to say nothing of how many sisters. I don't know how many sisters he had, it's not mentioned. And they all lived like him. He reckoned that if Lazarus could pop up at their place and tell them what had happened and the truth, of what it was all about, that they would repent and believe and suddenly become good little boys. Abraham said, Mm-mm, no way. 
Obviously, like him, they'd been brought up with the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. And if they refused to act, then nothing would change them. Not even if someone was raised from the dead. And as I said previously, I think history has proved that. People coming back from the dead only convinces those who've got a heart that's open to God, not all the other people. They will explain it away. And uh, I think that there's something very, very important here. In today's world, we see the same thing happening. Many people have been raised as Anglicans or Presbyterians or Roman Catholics. They know the story, but are happy to cruise through life without making a decision to follow Christ. They have the law of Moses, they have the prophets, they have the Gospels, but they can't be bothered doing anything about it. And even many church leaders today don't believe that Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead. So if church leaders don't believe it, how can you expect anyone else to believe it? But for us, I exhort you to study the scriptures, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and mind, and to use your gifts and talents and your wealth, even if it's only small, to further the kingdom of God and not just to have that dream of becoming richer and richer. Because at the end of the day, that may not be the best thing for you. I don't think it would be. So it's an interesting parable. It's very challenging. I think it's open to misinterpretation. But if we take it the way Jesus told it, it's a wake-up call, not for us to live our life selfishly, not to ignore the needs of other people and the needs around us, the needs of our own family, but above all, that we let people know the truth about life, that we're not here by accident. It's not an accident. We are here for a purpose, and that purpose is to know God and to make him known. So I bless your church. I pray that you'll continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will stick to the main thing. The main thing will be the main thing, always and everything. And God bless you and thank you for this opportunity. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you warned people and told them the truth about the kingdom and many people didn't like what you said. So they planned against you and they finally put you to death. But even in this, God took the most awful thing and turned it into a great blessing for all people, for all time. So Lord, we thank you that you have called us not to just spend our lives trying to get richer and richer, trying to wear fancier and fancy clothes, trying to show off to other people about how good we are. But you've called us to live our lives with a sense of love and compassion for those who are in need, and particularly the suffering church in many parts of the world today. Because one day, Lord, I know that we will stand shoulder to shoulder with those people in your kingdom. And I think they might ask us, did you not know that we were suffering? And if you did, what did you do about it? But Lord, I'd love to raise an army and try and stop the suffering. We can't do that. We can only call upon your name and ask you to use us in whatever way we can be used to bring glory to your name and to try to ease the suffering of others. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to learn the lessons that you want us to learn. 
and to live our lives to your glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.